Welcome back to Undefined. Today I speak with motivational speaker, cancer warrior, and author of Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life, Terry Tucker. The Undefined Podcast is available on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts, so make sure to go check out some other episodes if you haven't already. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and follow us on Facebook. Thank you for stopping in, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode of the Undefined Podcast. I'd like to welcome Terry Tucker, who is a motivational speaker and author of Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you, Keegan. I'm excited to talk to you today. Yeah. Uh, so why don't we start with your history, uh, uh, a little bit of your background, uh, explain some of that, and then we'll get into some other things as well. Sure. So I was uh, born and raised in Chicago. You can't tell this from my voice, but I'm six <laughs> foot eight inches tall, and I played college basketball at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, despite having three knee surgeries in high school. Mm-hmm. I have a, a brother, another brother who's six foot seven, who was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame on their baseball team. And then I have another brother who was six foot six, who was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers in the National Basketball Association. And then my dad was six foot five. So I always kind of joke that if you sat behind our family in church growing up, there wasn't a prayers chance you were going to see anything that was going on in front of us. So um, when I graduated from college, I moved home to, to find a job. I'm really going to date myself, but this was long before the internet was available, you know, and I was all set to make my mark on the world with my newly obtained business administration degree. Kind of look back now and realize what a knucklehead I was to think I knew anything about business just because I had a degree. But <laughs> fortunately, I was able to find that first job in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain. Wow. Uh, but unfortunately, ended up living with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my grandmother and my father, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. In my professional career, as I mentioned, um, was in marketing with Wendy's. Then I became a hospital administrator. Then I was a police officer. I did undercover narcotic work. I was a SWAT team hostage negotiator. Then I started my own school security consulting business. I coached girls high school basketball. I was a motivational speaker. Last year became an author. But for the last nine years, I've been a cancer warrior. And then finally, my wife and I have been married for 28 years. We have one child, a daughter, who's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is an officer in the new branch of the military, the Space Force. Wow. So a lot of different hats you've worn. (laughs) Yeah, one of these days I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up, you know. I love that. Yeah. It's like my number one, like favorite thing to hear people say uh, at any age is when they're like, I'll figure it out when I grow up. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Okay. So before, uh, I just want to ask as far as the Wendy's marketing thing, so keep it a light question before we head into some uh, more uh, deeper, richer, harder stuff is, uh, is there anything that people would recognize from the past that your like marketing team or you part of marketing sort of put into Wendy's that we could just recognize from maybe that our memory or history. It's been a second. I've been to Wendy's, I, but. You know, I, I doubt it. I, I was fortunate, you know, I was kind of at Wendy's during their, their heyday. And I started out in field marketing 
and eventually moved to a, a new product marketing supervisor. So Wendy's was doing a lot of things back then. They they put in uh, hot dogs for a while. Um, they put in you know breakfast. They had a, a breakfast, and and then kind of when everything went south for the fast food industry, everybody sort of retooled and went back to the basics. And so that mm-hmm. you know Wendy's got rid of breakfast. They're bringing it back now, and you know they got rid of hot dogs. They got rid of all kinds of things. But it was really exciting for me because, like I said, they were testing all kinds of different things and. You know, part of my job was whatever they were testing in a certain market, I would fly out to that market wherever, you know, say it was Seattle, I'd fly to Seattle and I would just go around, you know, rent a car and go around to the different restaurants. And, you know, were they suggestively selling whatever product we were testing there? Was it right on the menu board? Sometimes I would literally buy a product, package it put it, you know, in a box and mail it back to the corporate office so they could look at it. I mean, it wow. was it was pretty interesting stuff and yeah. sort of covert and, you know, undercover. I'm going to go into all these restaurants and see how things are going. So yeah. it was a lot of fun for me. But like I said, you probably wouldn't recognize anything that Wendy's has now that I was involved in. Yeah, that's that's fine. That's I mean, that's that's a super cool position that you worked. That's super. That's just interesting that you got to go. I mean, work undercover, but I mean, speaking of working undercover. (laughs) (laughs) Good segue, right? Yeah, great segue. I was like, uh, as far as working undercover with, I mean, undercover narcotics work, that seems super intense. Um, Like, what, what happened there? How long did you have to do that? Like, what was your life like when you were doing that? You know, it's funny because I never changed my appearance. You know, I never grew my hair long. I never grew a beard. I never, you know, I, I never mm-hmm. did. I, I, you know, I, I shaved not every day, but pretty much every day and, mm-hmm. and, you know, kept my hair short and stuff like that. And, you know, people ask me, how did you, how did you do this? And and there are a lot of ways to do that. And, you know, I always say that as long as you have money, Greed is what motivates that industry. And it certainly is an industry. You'll find somebody that will sell you drugs. And I, I mean, I also, you also kind of have to act a little bit. I remember I was, uh, I, I had one of the, I worked nights. And so I, one of the day shift people said, and this was Cincinnati, Ohio. This is where I worked as a policeman. And one of my colleagues on the day shift called and said, hey, <coughs> we've got these, <laughs> excuse me. We've got these kids coming down from Dayton, Ohio. They want to sell mushrooms because they want to use the money to go party in Cincinnati. Would you buy from them? And I'm like, sure. So we came up with a story and I I posed as a professor of metallurgy from the University of Cincinnati. Now, I don't know anything about metal other than you put it outside and it rusts, you know, most of the time. So, you know, I, I meet these kids in a park. And, you know, I, they jump out, get in the car, you know, we do the exchange, I get the mushrooms and, and then literally totally ruin their day because about five marked cars kind of swooped in on them with the rest of my team. And, you know, we arrested them all. And instead of partying in Cincinnati, they partied in the Hamilton County Justice Center that night. Uh, Yeah. But that's, you know, it was, it was intense. I was shot at a couple of times. I had couple of my colleagues had guns pulled on them when they were trying to buy and things like that. So it, it was, we did things as safely as possible, but it was, it was pretty intense. And we also yeah. worked with, 
with the DEA and the FBI, the federal side of it, because there were things like if I, if I wanted to charge you with a gun charge, I had to have the gun and the gun had to actually work. It had to fire in order for me to charge for, under state law. But when you worked with the feds, you know, if they were up on a wiretap on somebody and that person mentioned a gun, like I'm going to go get my gun or you should go get your gun. That was a federal gun charge. They never had to find the gun. They never had to seize the gun. The gun never had to work. There never even had to be a gun. But if they were up on a federal wiretap on somebody and they mentioned a gun, boom, that's a federal gun charge. So if wow. you, you know, you're up on somebody for, you know, three months, six months on a wiretap and they mentioned a gun 50 times, that's 50 federal gun charges. So we kind of wow. liked working with the feds. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, something interesting is, see, uh, I worked as a, for the Department of Child Services in Indiana for about a year where, um, as a child a child abuse investigator. Um, and the thing that I sort of have had trouble with after that is um, after like removing kids and all these kinds of things and, you know, going to court and all that kind of stuff is like, it can kind of make, it kind of made me a little paranoid where I was like, I so like tried to hide all my social media, like as best as possible. And like, um, I changed my name on uh, Facebook and like, so like if someone was looking for me, it was hard, you know, to find me, um, or at least harder to find me, I guess. But it's like, that's a whole nother level, you know, it was like, did you ever deal with like that kind of like paranoia or, you know, the idea of like, well, these people might come try to get me later for, you know, you busting them. Yeah. I mean, there, there was certainly, I, I again, the, when I was doing this, there, there was no social media, you know, there, yeah. there really wasn't anything I had to worry about that. But I mean, there were, you were always very cognizant of when you went to work and when you came home, yeah. you know, who was around now, you know, I got off work at three o'clock in the morning. So, you know, it, there weren't a lot of people out and I, I'll be honest with you. We used to, you know, we would do things. We, we had different strategies and, you know, is somebody fine? I mean, I remember one night I thought somebody was following me home. And so when I, when I got off the, the highway exit, I, there was a, a sheriff's department, Hamilton County Sheriff Department substation near where I lived. And so I drove to the substation and, you know, went inside and, you know, presented my credentials and said, hey, you know, I think somebody's following me. And they were great. I mean, they, you know, a bunch of them jumped in their cars and took off and tried to find the guy. Never did. Uh, but, you know, we lived on a cul-de-sac and, you know, my neighbors knew what I did and, and, and several of them worked from home. So, you know, I, I slept during the day. And so it was like, look, if you see anybody or strange cars or anything like that, please call the sheriff's department and that. And so, yeah, I mean, you're you're very cognizant, especially when you go out, you know, even as a police officer, you know, you arrest somebody and, you know, part of the arrest slip was where do you work? You know, yeah. people will be like, you know, I work at this restaurant. And you're like, man, I can't go there anymore now, you know, yeah. and stuff like that. So. <laughs> I can't go there anymore. Dang it. Right. Um, exactly. It was like, that's a good restaurant. I like that place. I can't go there anymore. So. Oh, yeah. I, um, I, I, so I just, I just started a new position as a substitute teacher, which I'm loving. And I went to a school 
and there was a kid in one of my classes who was on one of my caseloads, and I was like, well, I can't work here uh, at this at this specific school. I was just like, all right, that's fine. It's just, it's just weird how it all connects, and especially, I mean, you moved from Cincinnati, right? So that probably helps a lot of not having to run into people that you've busted or arrested. Yeah, it's yeah. I'll never forget. There's quick story. My my wife and and daughter and I went to a, a Cincinnati Reds baseball game mm-hmm. one one day. It was on the weekend when I was off, and 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 the night before we had done a search warrant on this this guy's house, and and he wasn't there. The the target wasn't there. So I had felony charges out on him for for dealing drugs. And on the way home, the his house was on the way home, and. Literally, I, I I told my wife and daughter, I'm like, I'm just going to drive past. He didn't know who I was. I mean, he had no idea. And I just drive, drove down his street and he was sitting on the front porch. So I called him. It was in District 2 and I called the District 2, you know, substation. And I said, hey, this guy's got a felony warrant. You know, here's the address and here's where he's sitting. And, you know, and they swooped in and, and, and you know, grabbed him and took him to jail on his felony warrants and stuff like that. But I, I didn't usually do stuff like that, especially with my family in the car. Yeah. You know, it wasn't something, I mean, you know, we'll get him. We'll get him eventually. It's not mm-hmm. like, you know, he's going to skip town or anything like that. He doesn't even realize that, that I had warrants on him. So he's not going anywhere. But, you know, my wife and daughter always said, like, really? You know, I mean, come on. It's your day off. Why are you? Yeah. <laughs> um. So just as a, you've worn all these different hats, right? Um, and uh, since it's more of related to the question of what are you passionate about, um, and how do all these hats, all these, how do all these different positions that you've worked relate to that passion? So what is, what is your passion and how do these things all sort of like correlate or connect? So I, I think my passion was to be in law enforcement, but if you look at yeah. my resume, my first two jobs were, you know, the corporate office of Wendy's and then in hospital administration. Mm-hmm. And there, there's kind of a reason for that. So my, my my dad's father, my grandfather, was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. So he was in Chicago during Prohibition when alcohol was outlawed in the United States during the, the Great Depression in the 30s. And, you know, even when the gangs, you know, Al Capone and that were, were shooting up the town, and he was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It wasn't a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle. But my dad always remembered the stories my grandmother told of the knock on the door of Mrs. Tucker, grab your son. Your husband's been shot and come with us. Right. And this was the 1930s. You know, so medical care back then was not nearly what it is today. So, you know, yeah. you got shot. It was, you know, you didn't have a bulletproof vest or things like that that we, you know, that almost every officer has today. So, you know, when I said I wanted to go into law enforcement, my dad was like, oh, no, 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 no. You're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going get, to get out, get a job in business, you know, get mm-hmm. married, have 2.4 kids and live in the suburbs. My exactly. dad <laughs> had my whole life planned out, yeah. but it was the life he wanted me to live. So when I graduated from college, he was sick. I, I, I mentioned I had to live with my parents for the next three and a half years. He had, he had cancer. So I had a choice. Do I say, you know, sorry, dad the heck with you, I'm going to go pursue my dreams. Or do I say, you know what, I know you're sick. I know you're dying. I will do what you want me to do. And, you know, I sort of joke, I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away. And then I followed 
my dreams. And in a way, that's kind of the way it happened. So, you know, I'm wearing these two hats in business. Now I learned a lot and I met some great people, but it wasn't my passion. My passion was law enforcement. And then I had to get out of it because my wife is the primary breadwinner and she lost her job in Cincinnati and couldn't find another one. So we had to move to Texas. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, well, you know, I am more than a policeman. Unfortunately, I knew a lot of policemen, you know, that had been cops for 35, 40 years and their identity was tied to that gun and that badge. And they didn't think they could do anything else. You know, so you get to a point where I'm like, no, I can do other things. I mean, I have a college degree. I have a master's degree. I've been Mm -hmm. to law school. It's like, you know, I can do other things. So I started my own school security consulting business based on my law enforcement background, my SWAT background and things like that. Yeah. And and then I, I coached girls high school basketball. So it was it was a passion and a love of mine to do something else. And I was able to do that. Yeah. I think it's a perfect point um, to segue into identity just in general um, is that I met even as even a lot of people just um, who are younger, like near my age um, or people in college. It's very interesting to see the struggle with identity um, like they people want to attach or, or have been told or, or, you know, whatever it is that this job is sort of who they are, who they become, or, um, that's what matters above all else. Um, and I, I, I'd like to hear what you think about that. Um, you touched on it, uh, just a little bit with the, like cops who are like, I am a cop. That's, that's what I am. Um, and I'm sure that's a part of the identity, um, and a part of your identity as well. Um, but it's not who you are, you know? So would you delve into that a little bit? Um, cause you so just dig into that a little bit more. Sure. So I, you know, I, I think it's important for people to find their purpose, their why, whatever you want to call it in life. You know, why were you, yeah. why were you put here? You know, Mark Twain, uh, the, the, the author had a great quote. He said, you know, the two most important days of our lives are the day we're born and the day we figure out why. Yeah. And so I, I think it's important for people to, to find their identity. But, but I also am real cautious in telling people that, you know, your purpose, your passion, your why doesn't have to be your job, doesn't yeah. have to be your profession. You know, I mean, you could have a job over here where, you know, you, you do this job to pay the bills, but your purpose, your passion, your why is, is over here. You're, you're, you're a writer or you, you do music or you're, you know, you, you volunteer, whatever that, that is in your heart. But I always tell, especially young people, if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you feel you're burning to do and it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at mm-hmm. the end of your life, the things that you're going to regret are not going to be the things that you did. They're going to be the things that you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. So, you know, I would definitely tell people, you know, search for your passion, do it with an open heart, but but understand that your passion doesn't have to be your profession. You can do something else and mm-hmm. still have your purpose be something other than your job. Yeah. So what tools or what... Um... 
Yeah, what tools, I guess I would say, would you would you say or give to younger people or just anyone in general to find that purpose? I, I think the biggest thing you have to do is you have to be open to it. You have to, you know, search for it with your heart. I, uh, w- when I wrote my book, I had, uh, it, w- it was really born out of two conversations. And one of those conversations was with a, a former player of mine who had moved to Colorado where my wife and I live. And we'd had dinner with her and her fiance. And I remember saying to her, you know, I'm really excited that you're living close because I can watch you find and live your purpose. And she got real quiet for a while. And she kind of looked at me and she's like, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I'm like, I have no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth and then living that reason. And and the conversation kind of went on. And I, I told her about, Colonel Sanders, who started Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I said, you know, I don't know if starting Kentucky Fried Chicken was his purpose or not. I'm going to assume that it was. Mm -hmm. But he didn't start that franchise until he was in his 60s, until after he had retired from his regular job. So I told her, I said, you know, don't be concerned if you don't find your purpose, you know, when you're 20 or you're 30 or you're 40 or you're 50. Just keep searching for it with an open heart. Sometimes it'll come later in life. Sometimes it'll come very early. I mean, you and I, Keegan, you and I both know probably people who, you know, always knew I'm going to be a lawyer or, you know, I'm going to be a doctor or I'm going to take over the family business or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But most of us don't know. Most of yeah. us, you know, have to search for it. So I think it's real important that you do, that you do search and you keep searching until you find it. And you just don't throw up your hands and be like, eh, you know, whatever. It kind of goes back to that that quote in the Shawshank Redemption, you know, get busy living or get busy dying. You know, if yeah. you're if you're just doing the same thing every day over and over and over and there's no passion, there's no love, you know, for what you're mm-hmm. doing, you're probably not doing your purpose. And, and in all honesty, you're, you're kind of in a dead zone where, you know, really, are, what, what are you contributing to life? What are you contributing to yourself? So yeah. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's I, I, kind of kind of the answer that came to my mind yeah uh, so keep on keep on searching there's there was a um there's a quote by helen keller uh it's and she says uh, security is mostly a superstition uh it does not exist in nature nor do the children of men as uh as a whole experience as a whole experience it avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure life is either a daring adventure or nothing yeah um, and, and I would agree with that. You know, I, I, I think that, you know, our brains are hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort and yeah. to seek pleasure, you know. And if you look at it, our brains like the status quo. Things are good right now. Don't mess with it. You know, but if you're in, for example, a dead end job and you want to, you know, like, no, I want to go somewhere else where I'll be more challenged and, you know, the, the atmosphere is better, whatever you want to say your brain is going to start attacking you. I mean, your brain is going to start putting thoughts in there like, oh, wait a minute, you know? No, you get along great with the people here, you know, at this job. And, you know, you go somewhere else, you may not get along with those people. And the work here is easy and you understand what's going on. Your brain starts putting all that negative garbage into your thoughts. And Mm -hmm. I think that's why a lot of people stay right where they are. But the only way you're going to grow, the only way you're going to be able to develop as a person is to step outside those comfort zones to yeah. do things that scare you 
to do things that, you know what, maybe even embarrass you. And I think that that alone prevents a lot of people from finding their purpose in life. They don't want to be embarrassed. They, they don't want to, you know, step outside that comfort zone. I like it. It's comfortable here. Comfort yeah. never gets you anywhere. You've got to step out. You've got to do something that scares you. Oh, yeah. And it, and I, so there's something that I, I try to do something I'm bad at, like uh, once a week, uh, sort, of, sort of as a, like just an exercise of, uh, and for, for me, it's painting. I'm, I'm terrible at painting. I'm so bad at it. Uh, but I do it as an exercise to be like, I'm bad at this, but I'm doing this because I like to paint. Um, I'm just bad at it. Um, and that helps me make tiny steps towards, for instance, quitting my, my job at the department. That, that was a scary thing, but necessary for me. And then moving on to deciding, um, to look at working with humanitarian things that are probably going to take me outside of the United States. Um, really, really scary to leave this comfortable place where like, all my friends and family are located here. All these, all what I know is here. All that structure is is located where I'm living now. But I know that I will I will regret not trying. And I know that if I if I stay, I will I I will it will drive me a little crazy because I just feel like I'll be holding myself back from that purpose. If that makes sense. Um, oh, it it makes total sense. And, and, you know, we like living in that comfort zone. And, and I always think back, my, our, our daughter, fortunately or unfortunately, got my height and was recruited to play basketball in college right. and, and made the decision to go to the Air Force Academy. And when she made that decision, I told her, I said, OK, now there are other schools that have been in on you that wanted you to go there. You've made this decision. Now you've got to call these coaches. And she was like, no, nah, I'll, I'll just send them a text. I'm like, no. You're going to pick up the phone and you're going to call them. And I, right. and I remember there were a couple coaches at schools that were not as good academically, that were not as good athletically as the Air Force Academy that kind of got mad at her. Like, you know, how dare you? You know, I, you're not coming here. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about it later and it was like, well, what did you learn from that? She's mm -hmm. like, well, I, you know, I, I don't really know. She's like, what do you think? I said, I think those coaches didn't really care about you. All they cared about was what you could do to help them. And I think you yeah. made the right decision in going with a coach at the Air Force Academy that, that cared about you and wanted what was good for you. For you. So, yeah, I mean, our daughter, yeah, oh, it's easy. I'll send a text. No, this is about relationships. Mm -hmm. and, and these coaches have been in on you and have come to see you play and have taken you to dinner and done things like that. No, you've got to. You you know, you've developed a relationship. You, you just don't send somebody a text and saying, I'm not coming to your school. You get on the phone and you make that a personal thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I So with with motivation in general, or the, the sticking on to the purpose idea as well, how do you help, how do we help people get out of this defeatist mindset, you know? I, like, cause that's where I see a lot of people are. They're just, they're like, I'm never going to find this. It's never going to happen. Um, so I'm just gonna, you know what, I'm going to make money. And I've had, I've met so many people my age who are, um, they're what's medically called marijuana dependent where they pretty much, cause they hate their life. They're just, so they, they go to work, 
at a job they, they don't like. They don't go out and connect with people. They come home, they get high, they eat, they go to sleep, and then they repeat that throughout the week. And then on the weekends, they'll, I don't know, hang out with people and get absolutely wasted. And I've met a lot of people like that. And it's a defeatist mindset where they're just like, I can't beat this system. I can't get out of this. Um, I'm, I'm just going to have to live this way for the rest of my life. And it's, it's that acceptance of that. And then, you know, they would look at someone like, they would look at you and they'd be like, Oh, you know what, Terry, you, you know, you, you, you know, you've, you, you got to get some, some cool jobs and then you got to go do something you like. And now you're an author and they're like, you know what, you, you just like, you just don't get it. You know, how do we help people who are in that sort of mind space? I, I don't know if you can, you know, I, I go mm-hmm. back to my time in the drug unit where, you know, people were addicted to drugs and, and we yeah. always, when we arrested people, we were always like, you know, do you want help? And, yeah. you know, you, you would, you know, and, and of course, you know, they would, always, oh yeah, yeah, I want help. But you know what? You're you're not going to be successful, even if you're you're offered help and you take it, until you hit rock bottom. Mm-hmm. And and there's there's a very fine line, especially when you're on you, you have an addiction, whether it's alcohol or drugs or sex or whatever it ends up being. There's a very fine line between rock bottom and dead. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I always I always offered people help, but they had to make the decision. You know, you you can't live somebody else's life for them. You know, if if they're in a dark place, I, I had a had a nurse uh, recently who, when I first met her, she was training in the unit that I have therapy on. She was still a nurse, but she was just training in that unit. And a couple months ago, she was taking care of me uh, just by herself, and she said, "You know, Terry, I got I got a story I want to tell you, but I'm really kind of embarrassed to tell you." And I'm like, well, why don't you just tell me, just tell me the story. And, and so she did. And, and this is what she said. She said, when I met you, I was going to get out of nursing. I'd had a very good friend of mine die and I was in a very dark place. And I talked to my mom and dad. She was about 25 years old. I talked to my mom and dad. I was going to quit nursing and I was going go to go to work for Amazon. And right. then I met you and I see, I heard your story and I saw what you go through Every day when you're here at the hospital, how you shake and you throw up, you have a fever and all this kind of stuff you go through. And yet you come back day after day after day. And I knew I was in the right place. Now, if she would have never told me that, I would have had no idea that my life had had an impact on her. Mm -hmm. So I guess, you know, in kind of a roundabout way to answer your question, I think we have to be the example for those people. And we can't make them do that. We can't make them stop, you know, getting high every day or getting drunk every day or whatever. But we can certainly live our lives in a way where they look at you and say, you know what? Yeah, my life kind of sucks. But look at Keegan. Look what Keegan's doing. You know, I want to be more like Keegan. I think there's a lot of people out there that look at Keegan, that look at Terry, that look at whoever. And, you know, sort of from afar, you never know who they are. They're just kind of hanging back, but they're watching you and they're watching how you live your life. And some of them are like, I want to be like you. And you have no idea who those people are. So I guess to answer your question, I don't think you can make people do it, but I think you can live your life in such a way that you become an example for the point in time if these people ever decide they want to turn their life around and do something else. Yeah. That's good. Um, I was going to 
we, when looking at people's stories, um, um, what I've told a lot of people is that human, human existence is, is tragedy. Um, and you just, you're going to be experiencing all sorts of horrible things throughout your life. Um, like, you know, your parents dying, losing a child, um, you know, just, you're going to experience these horrible things, uh, in your life. And some people will experience it more than others. Um, but especially for you, um, as someone who is, and an on is 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 still fighting, and is a cancer warrior, like you said. How do you deal with that? How do you how do you keep on moving forward? What keeps on pushing you um, to take that next step? To show up on every day to get these things done. To, you know, to write a book. To keep on moving forward. What helps you? So I I, I think there. We're all going to experience pain. I mean, yeah. you kind of hit the nail on the head with what you were saying before. We're all going to experience pain in our lives. And mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be like mine, like cancer pain or a chronic illness or anything like that. I mean, it could be as simple as, it, you know, you, you flunk a test at school or you break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or yeah. you don't get the promotion at work that you believe you deserve. Pain is inevitable in our lives. Mm-hmm. Suffering, on the other hand, Suffering is optional. Suffering is what you do with that pain. Do you take that pain and use it to make you a stronger, a tougher, and more determined individual? Or do you wallow in it and want people to feel sorry for you and, you know, feel sorry for yourself? Now, I I guess I want your audience to understand that, you know, there's no S on my chest. I don't wear a cape and fly around with magical power. (laughs) I have bad days just like everybody else. I'm a human. You know, there are days when I go to therapy and I cry. There are days, you know, that I'm so sick that that literally I prayed to die. There are days when, you know, I I just was like, you know, I'm feeling down. I'm feeling sorry for myself. I have those days. I have those times. I just don't let myself stay there. And I think part of it is using the pain that we experience. And again, we talked about our brains being hardwired to avoid that pain. But yeah. instead of running from it, what if you used it? What if you mm-hmm. took it and you flipped it inside of yourself and burned it as fuel or used it as energy to make you a stronger and more determined individual? And, and that's what I do. I take the pain. And you know what? I, I was on a drug that for five years, I took an injection every week that gave me flu-like symptoms for two to three days. So imagine having the flu every week for five years. And for me, that was not a cure for my cancer. That was just a a preventative measure to try to keep it from coming back. In 2018, I had my left foot amputated. Last year, I had an undiagnosed tumor in my ankle that grew large enough that it broke my leg. It, it, It broke my shin bone, my tibia. And my only recourse right in the middle of the pandemic was to have my left leg amputated above the knee. And so, yeah, you're going to have pain in your life. Winston Churchill, the former prime minister of Great Britain during World War II, had a great quote. He said, when you're going through hell, keep going. Yeah. And, uh, and I, you know, I think most people would look at my cancer experience and say, yeah, you've been through hell. Well, my, my answer to that is I'm going to keep going because I, I can't stop. You know, my pain... Is going to end someday, may end through medication, may end through surgery, 
quite frankly, it may end when I die. But if I quit, if I give up, if I give in, I will always have pain in my life. So just keep going. Just keep moving forward. Even if it's one inch, win that one inch today and see what you can do tomorrow. Wow, that's I mean, that's, that's awesome. I, I love hearing that. And that, it, it's interesting because I've been reading um, a lot of on, uh, well, psychology and philosophy right, uh, right now. But I've also been going through this mental health journey in the past year. Um, which has been really, really good. But one of the things that it's about embracing pain. Um, and the interesting thing is like embracing your sadness or your grief or, or your, or your pain, um, and feeling those things, uh, actually taking time to actually embrace them and get to know them is what helps you, um, literally catapults you and moves you forward. Even if it is just is that um, a lot of people when you're ignoring that pain or you push it aside or or you know whatever it is sadness or grief or whatever you're actually you're disassociating from from those feelings and they don't leave they just get worse um, especially and, and like for mental health reasons and so that's I I couldn't agree more with you on what what you're saying and I think it's it's so beautiful um, it's to hear people in their stories and where they're at. And, and yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's just no, that, a that, huge tangent there, but yeah. No, that that's, that's great that you've recognized that. And I, I remember reading about a, a study that was John, that was done at John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins university back in the 1950s, where this professor took rats mm-hmm. and he put them in water that was over their head. And, and the, the purpose was to see how long they would tread water, how long they could tread water before they, they sank and, and would drown. And right before these rats were, were ready to drown, he pulled them out of the tank, dried them off, and let them rest for a while. And the average rat initially treaded water for about 15 minutes. Yeah. And after he pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest for a while, he put them back in the tank. Same thing, same tank, same thing. And those rats treaded water a second time for 60 hours. Now think about that. 15 minutes is all you can do initially. What happens? Somebody pulls you out, dries you off, you know, lets you rest for a while. Gives you what? Hope. They give you hope in your life. And then the second thing that thing, that experiment taught me was how much more our physical bodies can do than we ever thought they could do. The, yeah. the Navy SEALs, probably the toughest group of men on the planet, they, they have a what they call their 40% rule. And that says yeah. that when you get to the point where you're done, you know, I can't do another push-up, I can't run another step, you're only at 40% of your maximum. Mm-hmm. And you still have another 60% left in reserve to give to yourself. So if you take the 40% rule and you actually say, okay, I can do an experiment to prove that rule with those rats. It's amazing how much more we can do mm-hmm. than we think we can do. We, the limits we face in our lives are the limits that we put on ourselves. Because I am totally convinced that everything we need to be successful in life is already inside us. We just mm-hmm. need to find it, pull it out, and use it to our advantage. Yeah. 
awesome. That's <laughs> so cool. Um, let's segue a little bit, because um, I feel like this is a perfect segue into your book, actually, um, which is the uh, Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles of Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Right? I got that right? You got that right. Perfect. Okay. Uh, so what is what is this book about? I feel like we were kind of, uh, you know, floating around it a little bit. Uh, but what is this book about? Um, and, and why, why did you write it? What, what was the motivation for it? Yeah. So I, I, I told you it was kind of, you know, I had, it was really born out of two stories. One was the one I already told you about my former player. Right. And then the second story was about uh, a young man in college who had connected with me on LinkedIn. And he asked me what I thought were the most important things that he should learn to not only be successful in life or to be successful in, in his job or in business, but but in life as well. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to give him the, you know, get up early, work hard, help others kind of stuff. Not that those aren't important. They yeah. are. They're incredibly yeah. important. And I don't want to dismiss them in any way. But I kind of had felt they'd been done a lot. So I wanted to see if I could give him something that was different, something that maybe went deeper, deeper into his soul. So I thought for a while and I wrote some notes and eventually I had these 10 principles and I sent them to him. And then I kind of stepped back and I was like, you know, I've got a life story that fits under this principle, or I know somebody whose life emulates this principle. So I had my leg amputated in in April of 2020 Mm -hmm. and I started chemotherapy for the tumors in my lungs in June of 2020. And during that three month period where you know, I probably should have been sitting around watching Netflix and eating, you know, candy and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories underneath each of those principles. And that's kind of how sustainable excellence came about. And I remember when, you know, I, I'd never published a book or had a book published before or anything like that. I remember, you know, thinking, okay, I got this book. Now, now I've got to sell books, got to sell books, got to sell books. And I had a best selling author over in the United Kingdom who I'd connected with on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And he, he kind of pulled me aside and he said, Terry, you're missing the boat. He's like, your job is not to sell books. Your job is to help people. Mm-hmm. If you help people, the books will sell themselves. And I was so glad that he did that, that he kind of pulled me aside and slapped me in the face, so to speak, because I didn't write the book to get famous. I didn't write the book to make money. I didn't, I wrote the book to help people. And, and I remember laying in bed and, you know, kind of was kind of at a crossroads. You know, what what do I do? Where do I go? I've just lost my leg. What, you know, I've got tumors in my lungs. Am I going to die? Is, I'm, what am I going to do with my life? And, you know, there's kind of an old joke that says, you know, when we talk to God, it's called prayer. When God talks to us, it's called schizophrenia. So yeah. I don't want your audience to think that God ever talked to me. He, he really didn't. But what he did is, I think, put people in my life that were making the suggestion. Hey, you ought to write a book. Hey, you ought to write a book. Hey, you ought to write a book. And I think I'm smart enough to realize that if multiple people are saying something to me, that maybe I had to step back and listen to what they're saying. So I always say, you know, I wrote the book, but I honestly think it was inspired by something that was much bigger than me. Mm. Good. That's interesting. So uh, I don't want to like ask what the, would you be okay with sharing some of the principles from the book? Or- sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, I it it's fun for me as an author because the each of the principles are a chapter, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, the book's not very long; it's maybe 120 pages, and 
And so whenever people read it, there's always one principle that kind of resonates with them. And, and I love hearing that. It's like, you know, hey, number four was something I really, you know, got into. Or number two was was the one that resonated with me. And and the one that that I think for me, the one that resonates with me is, is this. And it, the chapter's called Most People Think with Their Fears and Their Insecurities mm-hmm. Instead of Using Their Minds. And I, I think we talked about this earlier. I mean, that's something I've done in my life. And and it probably done it multiple times. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us do that. So that that's one chapter. There's a chapter in there about you are the person that you're looking to become. You know, mm-hmm. even if you're not that person, you yeah. still are that person. You just haven't gotten there yet. And it talks about how to get there. Uh, there's a chapter on failing, uh, the importance of failing and failing, you know, often, especially when you're young. Yeah. You know, don't don't sit back and think, oh, I never want to. The only way you're going to learn is, is to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's kind of why we practice. You know, when I was in basketball, why do you practice? Well, if everybody was perfect, you just go out and play the games. You wouldn't need to practice. Yeah. You know, you want to practice to make the mistakes and get those mistakes out of the way. And how do you how do you get better in the game? Well, you learn from the mistakes you make in practice. So mm-hmm. get out there and make mistakes, you know, fall down, screw up, do whatever you do and learn from that. You know, people always say, you know, there's only two things you can have, you know, you, you can either win or you can lose. Well, I look at it like you can either win or you can learn. If you don't learn, mm-hmm. then you absolutely lose. But if you learn something from making mistakes, then you can apply that to your life in some way. You know, you want to start a business, your business failed. Well, you know, oh gosh, I should never start a business. Did you learn something from that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe you can start another business over here with what you've learned. So I, I, I would... So that, that's one. And, and, and the last chapter, I think, is maybe the most important. I don't know. It, it's about the importance of love in our relationships, yeah. in, in our world. And I, I was a big fan of a man by the name of John Wooden, who was coach of UCLA uh, when I was a kid, when I was growing up. And, and he, had, he had basically a dynasty in college basketball. But he's probably more known for his pyramid of success. And these were building blocks that he talked about that were important to have success in life. And, you know, Coach Wooden, you know, I remember listening to an interview one day and and here's this great coach and this great tactician. And I'm like, you know, okay, Coach, give me something good. And he talked about the importance of having love in in whatever you do, whether it's love for your teammates, love for your job, love for your family, whatever it is, how love was the most important word in any language. And so I, I talk about that as one of the chapters. So those are, those are a few of the chapters that are in the book. Very interesting. <laughs> very intrigued uh, to, to get into, to get, well, I mean, obviously you can't just like read the book um, on the podcast, but uh, they definitely sound the one that, the, the one about fear and like the one about like not, uh, you said not letting your fears drive you. Is that what you were talking about? Yeah, basically, you know, not letting your fears and your insecurities make decisions for you. You know, yeah. do what's best for you, even though it scares you. Yeah, I, it's interesting uh, because something I've realized uh, recently um, is that fears and insecurities drive you into your fear and insecurity. Um, so, like, the thing is, oh, I'm afraid or insecure about you know being overweight or being alone, 
you know, uh, let's say that those are, those are, those are two examples. Those fears and insecurities drive you to being those things. If you let them drive you, um, that's something I've noticed is, you know, the insecurity is I don't want to be alone. So if you're letting that be your driving power, you're going to end up by yourself and alone because you're not going to be able for me, for me, my, my personal experience is it makes me living out of that makes me exhausted and be like, well, no one really wants to hang out with me anyway, you know? So I'm going to spend the night alone. Like I'm not going to go out and hang out with my family or friends or try to get anything done. I'm just going to be alone. And what, what I realized is I was like, Oh, these things living out of those areas of fear and insecurity, they just, they're self-fulfilling prophecies. They drive you into the exact place where you don't want to be. Um, which you're, you're right. Yeah, they do. I mean, it's, it's just a circle, mm-hmm. you know, you, you just, you just keep going around and, you know, I always have people come up to me and he's like, you know, I could never do what you did. You know, I could never go through that five years of flu and, you know, losing your leg, losing your foot and all that kind of stuff. Right. You know, and sometimes I say this most of the time I don't, I kind of look at them and be like, you're, you're right. You couldn't do it because you've already defeated yourself. You've already decided before you even started that you can't do this for whatever reason. You know, I'm insecure. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm scared. Whatever is the motivator behind that. You know, that's the reason you can't do that. Your mind can hold one thought at a time. Why would you make that a negative thought? You know, if you've already decided I can't do this, what I would tell you is don't even try. Don't even begin because you're just going to frustrate yourself because you've already decided that this isn't going to be successful for you. Mm -hmm. So don't go into anything in life, whatever it is. You know, even if you, you know, I got this big test and I didn't study for it last night. Now, what what is your mind going to tell you? Man, you're going to blow this. Yeah. You know, you're going to you're going to fail this test. Why would you go into it with that attitude? It's like, you know what? I I paid attention in class. I know what's going on. I'm going to do well on this test. At least tell yourself that. Yeah. Don't tell yourself, "Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to blow this test" because you know what? Yeah, you're right. You're going to. Mm-hmm. This is the if you already defeated yourself before you go in, then you're going to be defeated. All right. right. Have a little self-esteem. Um believe in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as a sort of bring it to a close, there's one question I like to end with. And it's, if there's one question, if you, so imagine if you were the host, okay. Of this show, you're in my shoes. What is one question that you would have asked yourself that I have not asked you? That's a great question. Um, I, I, I don't know how, how deep I want to go with this because, I mean, one of the questions I, I, I always, not always, but a lot of times I get asked sort of after the podcast recording is over mm-hmm. is the host will always ask me, you know, I, I really kind of would have liked to ask you about how you feel with the fact that I'm, I'm more than likely dying. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? So that, that's a question that I, and I always tell them, you know, and hey, you can ask me anything you want. But they're always uncomfortable with that. Most of us are uncomfortable with dying. I am not so much because I lived. You know, when I I found out I had tumors in my lungs and and my leg was going to be amputated, I went to the cemetery. I went to the mortuary. I went to the church and I planned my whole funeral. And I got a lot of brushback from that. People were like, hey, don't you think that's kind of defeatist? And then I kind of would look at them like, really? 
last time I checked, we're all going to die. You know, nobody's working on a cure for life right now, as far as I know. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was kind of like, you know, everybody dies, mm-hmm. but not everybody really lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the important thing to remember that in, in whatever you're doing in your life, there's a Native American Blackfoot proverb that I heard years ago that I absolutely love. And it goes like this. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Yeah. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. Mm. That's what I want. That's what I want my life to be about. So life is not so scary for me because of the fact that I found my purpose in life and I lived it. So yeah. now it's time to move on to whatever's next, whatever's after this life. And for me, having faith in God, I think it's going to be a pretty neat journey. Yeah. That's really, it's a beautiful thought. I mean, because people are so uncomfortable with, I mean, life is as natural as death. Yeah. So when, I mean, when you're facing this end, like, or what seems like a natural end to this chapter, I should say, um, has it been scary for you? No. It, it, it really hasn't. And it hasn't been scary because of two things. One, my faith, but mm-hmm. two, the fact that I found my purpose. I mean, when I was a policeman and certainly the number of years I've, I've had cancer, I've had a lot of people, I've seen a lot of people die. Yeah. And I'm going to make a huge generalization here. But the people who I've seen die, what you and I would probably call happy or peaceful deaths, seem to be the people that found their purpose in life and they lived it. They did something with their lives. Whereas the people who get to the end of their life and, you know, they want another day or another month or another year, those are the people that go kicking and screaming because they never did anything with their life. You know, we're not all born with the same gifts and talents, but we all have the ability to become the best person that we're capable of becoming. And I think if you do that, life is not nearly as scary when, when you come, or death is not nearly as scary when you come to the end of your life. Yeah. It's interesting because the, 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 the really interesting thing to me is that a lot of the people I've met, or just a lot of people in general, I guess, that's a big generalization, but are more uncomfortable or scared um, of going to work on Monday than you are with facing your own mortality. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. But again, it puts things in perspective. Yeah. You know, I I mean, we're all going to die. I I mean, and you're right. I mean, if you think about look, look around you, Mm -hmm. I mean, death occurs every year, you know, I I mean, in the fall things, you know, the, the leaves turn, you know, everything goes dormant, things die. Yeah. And then in the spring life comes back. You know, you see spring and, and we, we all love spring, you know, oh, things are getting better. And yeah, I guess maybe you don't like spring if you have allergies. But other than that, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's spring and, and things are coming back and the sun's shining and, and things are turning green and stuff like that. So it's it's that sort of circle of life that we see every year. And yet we're so scared of our own death. And is that yeah. because you didn't really live your life? If you didn't get out there and find your purpose and 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 live it? Because I, I just know people that have, and life is not so scary. And, and yeah. I, don't know, I don't understand why people 
are so afraid to die. It, it's just the natural extension of life. That's really good. <laughs> it was wonderful. It was awesome talking with you. Um, it's Terry Tucker. Um, Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles of Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Um, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. Maybe we'll do another one soon. Um, That'd be great, Keegan. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. I've really enjoyed it. That was my conversation with Terry Tucker. If you're interested in buying his book, I have put a link in the description below. Thank you again for listening to the Undefined Podcast, and we will see you next week.